They've got a brand new stadium, a big one, and they're going to put a big flag out there in a moment because the Eagle has landed for the Premiers. There's a new dynasty in the NBA. The Golden State Warriors champions once again. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Wednesday Sports Desk. I'm April. I'm joined with Tom and Kendra as always. How are you guys today? Very good this week. Carlton with a win. Uh, it's just uh, it's so nice. It just, it just makes my week even happier, you know? It just makes it even happier. Kendra, how are you? Yes, I'm really good. Um, I'm actually really excited about the athletics news. So that's something I'm looking forward to talking to you about. But I'm also happy that Richmond won as well. So I'll be excited to talk about that as well. How are you, April? Well, I'm not so good. Essendon got smashed on the weekend, so not a great one for me. But um, we'll get into all that footy chat soon. As you said, Kendra, we've got some athletics news, um, some more tennis and all the other usual sports um, that we cover. And, of course, an odd sport to wrap things up at the end of the show. So make make sure you stick around for that. But um, we will start with the wrap-up of round 12 in the AFL, which was the final round of the Festival of Footy, but we're, we're going to sort of head into another Festival of Footy. So I think it's just footy all the time for the rest of this season. It's, I'm very disappointed at the festival's ending. It's been nice just having the footy on in the background every day, but, you know, all good things must come to an end. So I guess you've got to move on from it, which sucks. Yeah, I know. And some people are even calling for like next year and future years just to keep this footy festival going. So imagine that if we like, you know, have AFL really sort of compact and on TV all the time. Imagine how that would turn out ongoing. It'd be cool to have it over like, you know, you have it two points during the season where you condense like three or four rounds to try and get more games in. That way you, you could potentially have teams play each other twice. Like every team plays each other twice. If you have these condensed rounds, you can maybe get the season compacted in a little bit shorter, but I guess that's a question for the players and whether they're able to sustain that as well. So just a thought. I thought it could be pretty cool. Yeah, it'd definitely be an interesting idea. It would be tough on the players. We've obviously seen, you know, there's been quite a lot of injuries this season. And if they did continue to do it, like with that many games going on in such, such a short period of time, you can only expect there to be a lot of injuries. So whether the players would be up for it, I'm not sure. Um, but it has been a bit of fun this year and something to try out and definitely something that I think they will consider going forward. So to go through the results from round 12, it kicked off on Thursday with Sydney beating GWS 66 to 25. Then on Friday, Geelong beat Port Adelaide 91 to 31. On Saturday, we had Brisbane get up over North Melbourne 53 to 52 in a very close game there. Uh, the other side of the games, we had Melbourne beat Collingwood 100-44. to A bit of a surprise and a disappointing game there for the Magpies. Tom, we've got Carlton's win over Frio yes. next, 40-36. Um, we'll come back to that game and have a bit of a chat about that one. The other results, we had the Bulldogs beat Adelaide 111-54. to St Kilda beat my team Essendon 68 to 33. West Coast beat Hawthorne 81 to 49 and 
Kendra Richmond beat Gold Coast 53 to 32. Yes. I guess there's a couple of talking points in the start of the week. Um, a big upset with the Swans beating the Giants. I don't think anyone saw that. There's a bit of, I guess, some more talking points with Elijah Taylor as well being banned for the season after breaching the COVID lockdown in WA. It's kind of, it's just a bit of a brain fade from him, don't you think? It's, bit, it's just dumb from what he's done. Yeah, I was reading like what he'd actually done and I just, Apparently, it was quite a sort of planned out breach, really, when he met, um, I think it was his girlfriend. But, like, yeah, I don't understand why players will put it at risk when they know that, like, such hefty fines and that they will potentially be out of um, the game for the year, why they'd risk it. Yeah, I don't know why he thought he'd get away with it. Um, so, a, a pretty poor decision there by him. And, you know, he's going to have the consequences to live with now. Exactly. And then another kind of upset was the Cats over Port Adelaide. Um, even if Geelong would have won, I guess people would have expected it to be a closer game than what it was. But a 10-goal win from Geelong there is definitely something that I guess a lot of people weren't expecting. I don't think anyone would have thought Geelong was going to be this good this year or this dominant at this stage. And then Port Adelaide have, I guess, proven themselves in the past couple of weeks. But then they've come out and now everyone's calling them pretenders because it's a pretty dominant win from the Cats here. Yeah, I didn't, um, definitely didn't tip Geelong to win. But I think now after seeing that game, they're definitely contenders for the premiership, I reckon. Yeah, well, they're in the top four, I believe. Now they're sitting third, which is, I guess, I, they've sort of crept up into the top four just out of nowhere, you know, coming off the Carlton loss, which was pretty significant for them because then it sort of, you, you question whether they're going to be able to make finals and that sort of stuff. But they've slowly crept back up and now they're sitting in third spot, which is quite surprising to me, at least anyway. Yeah, I think they're definitely moving into premiership favourites. Um, Port has obviously been questioned by people for quite a while, whether they are really going to be able to bring it once it gets to the finals. And I suppose this game could be a sign that perhaps once it does get to the finals and there's a bit more pressure on, and they're up against all the good teams, they might not be able to hold it together. But who knows? It also could be just an off game for them, like most teams have been having. And they might bounce back in the rest of the games for the season. Exactly. And then, I, you know, we're all not uh, Collingwood supporters here. We don't really like them. We love seeing them lose. They're in a bit of trouble at the moment. They're, you know, potentially looking at maybe finishing outside of the eight with the shortened season after, a, again, a very dominant win from the Demons, who most consider to have been not finals in, in finals contention at all at the start of the season. And now, again, they're creeping up and they're looking like they could potentially make finals. Yeah, well, Collingwood's now down in seventh on the ladder with Melbourne just one spot behind them in eighth. Um, that comes after, you know, I, it would have been a few weeks ago now, but we were talking about Collingwood being the premiership favourites and they've really slipped since then. And this was a pretty bad loss to Melbourne. Um, so it'll be interesting to see whether they can come back from this. They have had a few injuries and things. Um, so whether that's what's having an impact on them, um, we'll wait and see. Exactly. And they are a game in front of eight eighth place Melbourne and ninth Giants. So if those two teams catch up and both win those catch-up games, uh, Collingwood could potentially get knocked out of the final spot and sit ninth. So that's very interesting to see there. And I would love to see that as a Carlton supporter, to be honest. And I feel like you guys would love to see that as well. Oh, of course. <laughs> and then I guess moving on to the most controversial game for probably the year so far was the Frio Carlton game. Did you guys watch that at all? Yeah, well, I, 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 probably watched the end of it anyway. Yeah, yes, definitely. Um, yeah, I I didn't ex 
did not expect that. I was a little bit, um, yeah, lost for words when they actually ended up kicking the goal and actually making it. And then, yeah, Carlton stole the win. So I was saying this to, um, we were talking about it during the game with my parents and we were saying they haven't called a single deliberate out of bounds or game. We were talking about it at halftime. Like there were so many opportunities to call deliberate out of bounds and they hadn't called it. And we were saying they watched them pull one out in the last quarter to decide the match. And what ended up happening is they pulled one out and it ended up deciding the match. Just, you know, fortunate it happened to Carlton. Usually it happens against this. So I'm very happy it happened for us this time. So what do you think of the free kick that was given the downfield free kick, obviously, um, that ended up with Carlton having the shot after the siren to win the match? So there were the three free kicks given or the to the two free kicks and then the person who took it. So they're the three contentious calls throughout the game. So the deliberate out of bounds was there. There's no denying it was there. They hadn't called it all game, but doesn't mean that one that that decision was wrong. It was still the correct decision because it was a, a deliberate out of bounds. Uh, Doherty playing on, and then um, Angus Brayshaw, Angus Brayshaw, or one of the Brayshaw, can't remember his first name, the Brayshaw boy. He jumped and hit Doherty as he was after he kicked the ball. So it, it could be argued that he did fall for it and he did sort of go down easy, but you still can't do it. The bottom line is you still can't hit a player front on after he's kicked the ball or disposed of the ball in a vulnerable position. So that was also a correct decision. And there's been a lot of talk going around about people posting photos about the actual rule, but the, the rule that they've been posting is the Wikipedia rule, which is the, is just the, the incorrect rule as well. I've got it up here. So the rule here says, the free kick shall be taken by the nearest player to the location where the football touches the ground or crosses the boundary line, as the case may be. It doesn't say anything about being on the full or being at reversed or anything. It's just where the ball lands after the kick has been taken. And that's where the controversy comes in with Jack Nunes taking it instead of uh, Michael Gibbons. So that's also a bit iffy. Yeah, Gibbons was probably in the better position. The, the camera work doesn't help. There's a lot of, you know, diff, you know, they only had the one angle from down the line. So it's hard to tell exactly where the umpire saw the players. His perspective might've been with Jack Noons being closer rather than Gibbons. Gibbons was running away from the ball. It just depends on that. And also, a lot of people complaining that they gave it to... So I'm rambling on here. A lot of people gave it to Jack Noons. But Gibbons is our pure forward, one of the pure forwards in the game as well. So, you know, taking uh, taking away from arguably a better kick and giving it to Jack Noons might have, and uh, you know, ended up losing us the match. But lucky for us, Jack Noons slotted it and we won by four points. And now we're still in finals contention. So I'm very happy with that. What I wonder about this, obviously, you know, now we can talk about it as much as we want, but it's not going to change the result. Do you think footy will ever bring something in where they can review what happens in the game afterwards and change, reverse the result of a match if they think that incorrect decisions have been made? Ooh. I think that, uh, uh, no, I don't reckon they could do that. I think you would just bring up a whole lot more controversy post-match. I think what's done is done on the day because then you're just going to have a whole lot more of, yeah, like ha- like over-analyzing the game, I think, personally. Yeah, I feel like that's it's it sort of ruins the match then. It just sort of defeats the purpose of having the match if you're going to change the result after it's finished as well. You can potentially do what the NFL does and they have coaches reviews they get two a game and you can do a coaches review throughout the whole game if you want but then in the final two minutes of the last quarter every single play is reviewed so you don't have a game a game changing decision that will influence and change how a game ends so you could potentially implement that and then the the umpires could 
use the arc. Like every like the arc is watching everything happening in the last five minutes of the of the game. And then if something's wrong, they can go down to the umpires. They can check if it was a goal, if it was touched, if it was, you know, who was the closest and that sort of stuff. That could be something that you could implement as well. We'll be interesting to see whether they do. But, you know, one of the things I think we've complained about this year is too much tinkering with the rules and everything like that. So I think probably perhaps less change is more at the moment. Um, I want to move on to Essendon's game. Obviously, Essendon are slowly slipping down the ladder after looking pretty good at the, earlier in the season. Um, there's been some calls after our loss on the weekend and um, a few recent losses. Should John Worsfold step down early? Obviously, at the end of this season, he's going to be stepping down from the coaching position and handing it over to Ben Rutten in their plan to sort of do a year of um, changeover where they work together. Um, do you think he should just step down early, seeing as the team's not performing well now? Is it time to just start thinking about next year? You've got the inside scoop here, April, I reckon, as an Essendon supporter. Is, is Ben Rutten the, the main coach at the moment anyway? I know long, um, Worsfold is the head coach, but is he actually being in that role, being as the head coach, or is he, he allowing Rutten to take the reins because he is going to be the future head coach? So uh, is Worsfold making the decisions or is Ben Rutten making all these decisions? To be honest, I have no idea. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and I have no idea either. I just, you know, I, I reckon it could be that Rutten, you know, Worsfold is sort of coaching Rutten from behind, letting Rutten do all the coaching and Worsfold potentially just helping him out instead. Even though he is the head coach, he's more coaching him as an assistant, if that makes sense. That could be the case, yeah. I, I don't follow a lot of the sort of behind-the-scenes stuff with the club. But one thing I do know is that a lot of the players have been coming out and saying, um, you know, we're working on a new game plan. We're going to stick with this and um, keep trying to put it together. And perhaps that is a sign that, you know, Rudden might be introducing things that he wants for next year. And they're starting to work on it and it's just not clicking yet. But hopefully if they do keep sticking at it, it might work for next year. Um so that could be the case. I, I wonder whether, you know, if Worsfold isn't doing that much at the club, is that another sign of that maybe it's time for him just to sort of step down and let it go? I, I, he probably doesn't want his um, coaching career to end with a string of losses. Yeah, I think he should just see it out until the end of the year because um, he's already come this far in the season and I don't see why now he should like leave and step down because I think yeah if he is with co-coaching with the other coach then yeah they're probably he's probably taking the reins anyway so he should just see it out until the end of the year I think Essendon owe, owe it to Worsfold to keep him in for the for the rest of the season as well for all he's done taking over the team after everything that's happened as well he was one of the only coaches that put his hand up to take over and he's done an incredible job with this team bringing him back to to their reputation and is bringing everything back into the club that they lost when everything happened. So I think he deserves to finish out the season and, you know, then he can assess after that. And our last AFL topic to discuss is that we've got Indigenous round coming up next round. Uh, one of the controversial issues though, is that the Australian Aboriginal flag is not going to be used as it's under um, some copyright and various things at the moment. So the AFL has not been allowed to use it to promote the round or um, on the grounds or on the special jerseys that all the teams will be wearing. Uh, what do you guys think of this? And overall, are you looking forward to Indigenous round? We've, of course, got the Dreamtime game being played up in Darwin this year, which I think will be awesome. I think it's really disappointing that you can't have the flag. It would have been 
really well, it just would have been really nice to have it there side by side with the uh, Australian flag as well. And on the jerseys on the ground, if it was the only flag used, it would have been really nice to see it. Um, it's very disappointing that it's unable to be used because of copyright, I believe you said. That is very disappointing that that's happened. But saying that, it's awesome that footy is being played in Darwin. I think it, the Dreamtime game should be played there every year, if I'm honest. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I think that it's, yeah, quite sad that they can't use that. I think copyright has maybe gone a little bit far that they can't use this in a game, which definitely would, it definitely helps bring a different sort of energy to the game when they're all in their Indigenous jerseys and they do have the flag. And yeah, I think it's quite sad, but it is good that they are playing it in Darwin. Yeah, I've... Um... I just on that as well. Apparently, they're looking at selling out the stadium as well, because obviously in in uh, Darwin they they don't have really any cases at all. So they're under the impression that they can sell out the stadium and they can sell out all the packages. But I think the AFL are coming out and being like, "Hang on, you guys have to go by our rules and you have to have limited tickets, limited seats, and that sort of stuff." So I think there's a bit of back and forth between Darwin and the AFL on whether the crowd, well, like what the crowd capacity can be and all the events and stuff happening around it as well. It'd be fantastic to be able to have a sellout crowd. Um, But obviously, you know, you don't want anyone to be at risk um, because of the game. So I think whichever way they end up deciding, I'm sure it'll be sort of in the interests of the majority of people in keeping everybody safe. Um, But fingers crossed they can have a sellout stadium because Northern Territory obviously is doing well with not having any coronavirus cases. So they've probably earned the right. Sin, where young people run the show. Soft memories of youthful days. All right, now for some athletics news. Aussie athlete Jessica Hull has shattered the Australian record for the 5,000-metre track at the the Monaco Diamond League meet and has clocked a very quick time of 14.43 for 5,000 metres. So she's beaten her personal best, which was 15 minutes 32. So she's definitely blown that out of the park and she finished fifth as well. So I think this is a really good story considering that the Olympics had been cancelled, that we still have Australian athletes travelling around the world and, you know, bringing in some new records for the Australians. Yeah, it's really nice to see, especially with, you know, the Olympics being cancelled. At least these athletes are having these events to go and compete at and get potentially these times, break their own personal records and world records as we've seen as well. So it's, it's really nice to get some form of competition and practice for these athletes as well before the Olympics next year too. It's good to see as well because this was um, sort of the first big athletics meet um, since the pandemic and to see that she's obviously come back in fantastic form and has obviously been able to keep up her running and keep up her fitness while they've had some time off so um, she'll be thrilled with this and it's pretty to knock four seconds off her time from beforehand is pretty phenomenal. Yeah, I also definitely think that these athletes are in, yeah, they would definitely be in the peak of their lives because they have been training the last four years for the Olympics and they haven't had that. So it will be interesting to see if they can maintain this standard till next year when the Olympics does go ahead. So we can just hope for the Australians that they keep this up. I'm reading an article um, which is talking, has an interview with Jessica Hull after her win and it's kind of nice to read. She she talks about how um, with three laps to go, she thought she was never going to finish. And like for me, running 5,000 metres just sounds so impossible and so far. Um, and so it's nice to hear that even a elite athlete and now a record holder in the race 
also struggles to run that far. I can't even do like a couple of Ks in 15 minutes. That's insane to do like 5,000. I, I, can, I can probably not do a kilometer in like 15 minutes if I'm running. Like I'll be dead after like half a K. Like that's just insane. Like the work these athletes put in, it's just awesome. Jessica Hull wasn't the only one setting records at the Monaco Diamond League. We also had Ugandan Joshua Cheptegei smash the 5,000 meter world record. Um, he is, I believe, a record holder in 10k and 5k road runs um so this is probably not a huge surprise that he's gotten there on the 5000 meter track run um but obviously we're having a lot of a lot of really phenomenal results at this meet yeah incredible and this world record held for 16 years and then chapter gay who's 23 as well has just come out and absolutely smashed it under 13 minutes is just in a phenomenal feat to do uh, the 5,000 meter run. And it, again, it's just awesome to see these events happening before the Olympics as well. I think with this race, what I, what blew me away the most with this is that his breakdown of splits was 61 seconds per 400. And when you think about that with someone like Kathy Freeman, who's going around her one 400 meter lap in like 51 seconds and then, or 40, late 40 seconds. Um, and then you've got this guy who's going for 5,000 metres, consistently pulling out 61 seconds. I, I just can't imagine the speed that this guy is running at. Insane. And then he did the last lap in two minutes 30. After his run, the whole thing at full power, he's gone and taken it up a notch in the last kilometre where you're just the most dead and done it in like in two minutes 30. Like it's, that split is just insane for somebody. It's just incredible. Turn up your radio. This is Sin. All right, moving on to some super netball. We just had round four finished. And there is a game today, I believe, to commence round five as well. So on Saturday the 15th, we had the Magpies losing to the West Coast Fever, 62 to 63. Isn't that nice to see the Magpies losing by a point? Ah, It's just nice in any competition, isn't it, seeing the Magpies lose? Magpies not having a good weekend all around. Exactly. And then we had the Firebirds and the Giants in a 61-all draw, which is very interesting as well. Then you had on Sunday, the Lightning beating the Swifts 65-58. to And then unfortunately, the Vixens went down to the Thunderbirds 47-54. to April, how was the ladder looking? So we are only four rounds into the season, which means it's all still pretty close. But we've got the Vixens are sitting just on top of the ladder, but they're on 12 points, which is the same as the Lightning, who are in second. They're both on three wins and one loss. Then got the New South Wales Swifts are in third, also on three wins and one loss. And then the Fever are in fourth on two wins and two losses. But it's all really pretty close at this stage. And I think it's going to take a few more rounds before we um, really see the ladder start to separate um, the the top teams from the bottom. But as you said, um, we're, of course, pre-recording this show on Tuesday. So we've got round five starting this evening um, and carry on over onto Wednesday, which is tomorrow for us as well. Yeah, and it's nice to see the Vixens with a pretty hefty percentage as well on top. So, you know, if the end of the season does come down to same points, they've got that, uh, you know, a pretty decent percentage compared to, to others at 112, uh, 21, sorry. And then the next best is Lightning at 107. So that's also nice to see for, for the Vixens. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and the other Vic team, the Magpies, are down in seventh, which is second bottom of the ladder. So 
Um, not that we want to hate on them too much, but you know, we it's don't only because they're Collingwood. Here. Only because they're Collingwood. <laughs> Sin, we're young people run the show. Over to some tennis news now, and there have been even more withdrawals from the US Open. I feel like we touch on this every week. We've got a new list of players who have pulled out, and this time it is the women's world number two, Simona Halep, who has announced she will not be going to New York to play in the US Open, which is now two weeks away from beginning um, on the 31st of August. It'll be kicking off, so a week and a half away from, from its start. Exactly. A bit of a late withdrawal here. She came out on Twitter and she said, after weighing up all the factors involved and with the exceptional circumstances in which we are living, I've decided that I will not travel to New York to play at the US Open. I always said I would put my health at the heart of my decision, which is a, a you know a pretty reasonable response and what you'd expect from most people that are, you know, they're going into the, that would be, be, sorry, potentially going into the US to compete at the US Open. You know, you would hope they'd be putting their health in front of everything else. So it's nice to see. And again, questioning, should the event go ahead? We say this every week, more and more people are pulling out, you know, should the event go ahead or not, you know? Yeah, definitely. Um, It's funny that like she has said that she's going to put her health first, which is definitely really important, a good move by her, but she has sat back and I think watched to see what a lot of other players have done before she has withdrawn. So I just wonder about that as well. But I think, yeah, definitely a smart move. And yeah, like we say every week, I don't know why they're still pushing for the US Open to go ahead, especially how America is with all its cases and all these athletes pulling out. Yeah, I think perhaps the the amount of particularly the women's players who are withdrawing would have um, made her feel more comfortable with withdrawing. And perhaps if not so many of them had pulled out, how it might have felt more pressure to play. Um, but with her withdrawal, that means that six of the women's top 10 players are not going to be playing at the US Open. So um, it's going to be very different looking and really even with a week and a half to go I wonder if we're going to see even more pulling out right up until it begins. Exactly I was just about to say that as well the, you know with a week to go you're probably going to find out that more and more players are pulling out because they might have been waiting just before the open to see how New York responds to the cases if they're going down if they're going to be, be controlled and you probably don't re- you don't know those results until right up to the event so these players probably are going to start pulling out now because nothing seems to be getting better in America at the moment. So the players in the women's top 10 that are still playing are, of course, Serena Williams, who is seeking her 24th career Grand Slam. We've also got Karolina Pliskova, Sofia Kennan and Naomi Osaka. Yeah, so it's very good for Williams here. Only three others in the top 10, I believe you were just saying, are left. So it's a, it's a good sign for Williams to potentially take out the US Open again and then, you know, seek her 24th career Grand Slam title to match Margaret Court's all-time record and potentially beat it after. But she has just lost to 116th seed, the 116th seed at the Lexington Top Speed Open, which isn't a good result for someone wanting to come into some form right before the US Open as well. Yeah, I don't think that is going to fill her with confidence um, necessarily going into the US Open. I think it does show and which we've kind of seen over the past few years that Serena Williams isn't exactly the the super dominant player that she used to be. She is a bit shaky. She is beatable by a whole range of people. Um, So it'll be interesting to see even with this US Open that's sort of shaping up like she should win and at least should get right to the end of it, um, whether we could see a shock loss and her go out early anyway. Yeah, she's definitely 
I think a very unpredictable player though. I have seen her like countless matches where she's been on match point and still come back to win. So I definitely think even though she has lost to the 116th seed, she's definitely one that could come back and win the tournament. She's very up and down in her playing, but in saying that, yeah, she could definitely win. Exactly. And then moving on to a bit of dramatic news here for the former world number four, Kane Ishikori. He is just being tested positive for COVID-19 while in Florida. Why would you go to Florida if it's one of the epicenters of the US at the moment? That's just, that's kind of dumb, isn't it? I think the thing that stands out to me about this news that came out is just how easy it is for a player to suddenly catch COVID-19. Nishikori says he barely had any symptoms and he just sort of got a test, I think, kind of precautionary um, before he moved to New York for the US Open. And then it ended up, the results came back positive. And so now he's going to have to stick in Florida um, while he waits to recover. But it just shows how easy it is for a player to get the virus. And, you know, if if another player hadn't got a test done and then they went and turned up at the US Open, then all of a sudden it could spread between all the players who have chosen to play. Exactly. He was staying at the IMG Academy in Bradenton in Florida. So you would think if, you know, you got tennis stars staying there before the US Open, you'd hope that they'd be testing everybody and everyone can stay in lockdown, not go out. But obviously someone's gone out and he's gotten it from either a staff member or, you know, one of his teammates. Yeah, I honestly don't see why any any athlete would even, yeah, even if the academy's there, go to Florida. That's like sending all the AFL players for a quick weekend in Victoria then going back. Like, I don't understand why you'd go to Florida, which has is having heaps of cases every day. I imagine uh, this is likely to, if I were one of the players, I think this would be pretty scary news to have, um, you know, when we're sort of on the on the eve almost of the US Open starting um, so be interesting to see whether we do see more men's players um, starting to pull out as well because it probably hasn't been as significant um, a drop-off as the women's. Um, but I imagine Nishikori won't play. I'm not sure actually whether um, if he recovers by the time it starts, whether he will go and play, but I think you'd expect he'd be out now. Yeah, if, he, if they force him to do two full weeks, he probably won't make the US Open, actually. They might schedule him on for the second day to see if he can make it, maybe if the time allows it. But he's going to be pushing it anyway, at least. On FM, on DAB+, and streaming online at sin.org.au. This is Sin, where young people run the show. All right, moving on to some Formula One now. I'm not going to stay on it too long because if you've watched it, you know it was a very, very, very boring race. Hamilton led from start to finish overlapped everybody except for Bottas and Verstappen. Uh, Verstappen finishing second, Bottas finishing third. It's nice to see Mercedes not finish one, two. But other than that, like nothing happened. There wasn't, you know, only Leclerc uh, dropped out with the DNF and that's because he had an engine failure. Everyone else finished. There wasn't really much overtaking for, you know, all the hype of maybe the Mercedes not being able to cope in the heat and the tyre wear being a factor for them. You know, they've, they've come out this week and it hasn't been a problem. And and with Hamilton, yeah, you know, after this victory, he's got such a dominant lead in the points over anybody else. It's going to be really hard to see anybody even making a vague challenge of the championship. Even, even Bottas is now so far behind. And with the limited season, it's going to be hard to see anybody competing for that championship except for Hamilton now. Yeah, it seems like it was back to the same old, same old after. Last week, we had the excitement of Verstappen getting up and winning, but 
even that, you know, the, the top two has been Hamilton and Verstappen for weeks now. Um, so I don't watch a lot of F1 and I don't know if it's normally more exciting than this, um, but you're not inside. It I usually totally is. <laughs> yeah, usually. It has been previously. Um, but this year, every other car is just nowhere near as dominant and as powerful and as fast as the Mercedes is. So it's not the Mercedes fault that they're so much better than everybody else. It just sucks that nobody else has made a car that can be anywhere near the Mercedes. So it's just disappointing, you know? Well, we've got the Belgian Grand Prix up next week. It is on next Sunday, 11, 10 PM Melbourne time. Do you think we're going to be seeing another win from Hamilton there, Tom? Uh, yes, it just it'll, it'll all depend on the Mercedes. It's not going to be Verstappen having an amazing drive. It's going to be either a problem in the Mercedes, there's going to be a crash, it's going to be raining. It'll just depend. Most likely Hamilton or Bottas, hopefully Bottas, so he can get some points up again. But it's looking like Hamilton's just going to run away with the season now. Moving over to the MotoGP now, and we had some horror crashes in the Austrian Grand Prix. We've got the audio of the commentators uh, during the race from Fox Sports here. They've made contact. Zarco comes around and he's going to try and take a defensive Look, line. Oh, 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 Rossi. Dearie, mate. Rossi's dodged I, oh, I cannot believe oh, it. So, Tom, I think you said you were watching the F1 at the time and then um, saw it almost straight after it happened. Do you want to talk a little bit more about the crash? Yeah, so pretty much what happened is... Uh, Valentino Rossi, arguably one of the greatest MotoGP racers of all time, was actually almost killed. Like, you, you don't say that often with crashes and that sort of stuff. But from what happened in this crash, Valentino Rossi, he did. He almost died. He almost got sideswiped by two bikes at 300 kilometers an hour, flipping on each end, going past him. He's, he's incredibly lucky. And for someone like him, he doesn't get rattled very often. But he you know, it was a it was a red flag. The race stopped after the crash, and when they went back out, he was saying he was really scared and really shaken, and it took a lot of effort to resume the race, which is really is how you know something bad could have really happened to rattle arguably one of the greatest you know drivers of all time. So, pretty much what happened it was the crash between Morbi Deli and Zarco. They were racing for a position, and I believe it was Zarco who who was braking at a 300 kilometers an hour at a really um, like she sort of cut him off instead of trying to go around him. You sort of undercut him and breaking at that fast of a pace obviously doesn't do, do much for the bikes. And they both came off. And then because the bikes are going at such immense paces, they went over the gravel and they were sort of rolling over each other. And because the track uh, bends around that gravel bit, the bikes went across and through the bend just as Valentino Rossi was driving around it and the bikes both flipped right in front of him around that corner, almost taking his head off, which it's, it's, a, it's a really horrible thing to, that, to have happened. And it could have been even worse if the bikes had taken Rossi out as well. Yeah, definitely. I think watching uh, these crashes, you know, you see crashes in motorbike racing here and there, and it always looks terrible, but, you do kind of wonder, like, without being personally involved, you know, what is a really bad crash and what sort of a expected crash, I suppose. Um, and to see how much this has affected Valentino Rossi, it does emphasise that this crash really was as bad as it looked. And, you know, uh, I guess from an outside perspective for you guys, 
you know, if you are, you know, one of the greatest of all time, you've won multiple world championships, you're the world number one for however long. Do you sort of contemplate and consider maybe retiring now? You know, he's done everything. He's at the back end of his career. He doesn't need to prove anything after something like this where you, you know, could potentially have, just, you know, have, have died. Do you consider retirement and say, all right, that's it. I don't want to risk my life anymore. I just want to live out a happy life with my family. And I've got all the money in the world at the moment. You don't need, you know, you're set for life. Do you consider retirement? Surely. Well, I know if I was him, I would definitely retire. Um, but yeah, I, I just wonder, do you, does the sort of, do the athletes get so used to always winning and sort of almost get addicted to that feeling? Is it too strong to sort of walk away from their sport, even though they have achieved everything that there is to achieve in their sport? I think probably as well, you know, I'm sure they love motorbike riding and motorbike racing. You know, this would be their passion. It's, it's dangerous every time they do it, regardless of whether you're in a situation like this or just, you know, just going out for a ride anytime is is pretty dangerous and I think they would know that that would always be in the back of their mind when they go out to do it but it's something that they love so I think that's why they keep going and I think retirement might be something that he would consider but I I think he'd be so passionate about it that it would be pretty hard for him to hang it up. Yeah, it's definitely hard. And we have seen previously, um, you know, Australia's Casey Stoner walked away after winning a world championship. And even in the Formula One in 2016, I believe, Nico Rosberg retired and walked away after his world championship as well. So, it, you know, we do see it in these extreme sports, but it is rare that it, it happens as well. Sin, where young people run the show. Last memories of youthful days. All right, now to some swimming news. Australian marathon swimmer Chloe McArdle has surpassed the men's record for the most English Channel crossings. So the English Channel is 35 kilometres and Chloe McArdle has swum the English Channel for the 35th time and she swam the time in 10 hours and 40 minutes. Now, I think that anyone would agree swimming for 10 hours is a long time to be swimming in the open water, particularly the English Channel, which is quite rough water. So I can imagine you'd be feeling quite tired after completing this sort of an event. I can barely do a couple of laps in a normal swimming pool, let alone 10 hours straight in the ocean. That's insane. That is awesome from an Aussie as well. And to, you know, to break the men's record, good on her. That's incredible. And 35 times, I don't know. I can't believe it. That's just such an amazing feat and so much dedication and hard work to go into it as well. That's just awesome. Yeah, it's an incredible achievement. Um, one thing I will say is that I do think probably by the 35th time you're starting to, you know, get used to it um, and maybe the distance doesn't seem quite so far for her anymore compared to how unimaginably far it seems for us. Um, but a really great achievement by her are the men's record that she beat was held by Kevin Murphy um so just phenomenal for her and you know swimming the English Channel seems like one of those things that she can sort of just keep going and who knows how many times she'll end up doing it and how she could hold this record for a really long time I'd imagine yeah and just to give like for both of you who are sort of outsiders when it comes to open water swimming 
the English Channel is really hard to even complete once because it's sort of like climbing Mount Everest. If the conditions aren't right, you can't you can't cross it. Even if you've travelled from Australia to France or UK to complete this and the conditions aren't up to scratch, then they're going to say, no, you can't do it. So for her to have got 35 times of crossing that, um, with it, it doesn't even say how many times she hasn't actually been able to finish it. So I think that is quite quite a really good achievement really they say as well that she's done the channel crossing four times in the past few weeks um which just that itself seems incredible both that she's been lucky enough to get the right conditions but also just you know if each swim is taking about 11 hours that I imagine it would take a lot of recovery after each swim for sure but the thing is with swimming compared to other sports is swimming you can recover quite easily from it because you don't, you, it's not like you're supported by the water. So you don't get the same sort of soreness. So swimmers can generally back up lots of distance. So I think that has definitely helped her with this many crossings. It says here, she also holds the world record for the longest unassisted ocean swim in the Bahamas, which must be, uh, uh, well, it, sorry, it says here, 124.4 kilometers. What? How, how does somebody do that? <laughs> I guess insane. Yeah, I think you've just got to, I don't know, be really just good in at in the counting. zone, yeah. I guess, um, count to 100, 100 times. You can't even put headphones in and just like, you know, get out of it. Yes, you're stuck in the water with the waves splashing all over you. I feel like it'd be hard to just concentrate and get in the zone. But I think the thing, I mean, she did do it in the Bahamas, so I could imagine that the Bahamas would be quite scenic. So maybe that played into it a little bit. Like, oh, but... there's a fish over there. I'm going to swim to this fish. Oh, that's a nice little shark. I'm away from this shark. <laughs> could be away I might try it <laughs> oh I won't I'll drown that's a horrible idea <laughs> I wonder how long that one took her as well because you know her channel crossing took 11 hours which was 35 kilometers and 124 kilometers is a lot further than 35 kilometers so I can only imagine it must have she must have been swimming for hours and hours on end yeah I think it was broken up into a few days like stopping on boats and also I remember her saying that she almost had to stop it because of jellyfish stings. So that definitely played into it. Jellyfish in the Bahamas, like, no. definitely could could have ended the race right then and there. Sin, where young people run the show. So over to a little bit of horse racing chat now. And there's been a bit of debate um, over the past week about the whipping rules. Um, so obviously in horse racing, there are restrictions on the amount of times you can use the whip on a horse at particular parts of the race. Um, but the issue that's sort of come up is that each state has their own jurisdiction in terms of what the penalty is for breaching those whipping rules. And so some states are really pretty lenient on it and you don't get much of a penalty at all for, break, for breaching it. Um, some states, such as Victoria, have tried to bring in tougher penalties to disincent, disincentive, I'm not going to say that word, to <laughs> discourage, <laughs> to discourage um, jockeys from overusing the whip. Um, what do you guys think on this issue? Do you think the, the Australian Jockeys Association is calling for there to sort of be a national uniform rule and penalty from that? Um, do you think that should be the way that, it, that horse racing goes? It's kind of hard, I guess, from an outside perspective. I don't really know much about the sport other than, you know, Melbourne Cup weekend and the festival and stuff. But, you know, I feel like it, it would probably prob probably help if there was a, like, a universal rule set that everyone should follow. 
But then again, you know, uh, April, do the, do the different states have their own set of rules for other stuff as well? Or is there one massive entity in Australia that everyone has to follow in the different states? Well, we do have Racing Australia, which is the body for racing for the entire um, country, but each state then has their own um, sort of body that controls racing in that state. Overall, I don't think there's too many rules that really would differ, um, particularly like the fundamental things like the whipping rules and stuff. Um, I think in horse racing, you know, you have the jockeys, they travel around to all the states and ride in races everywhere. And if the rules like that, that really are an integral part of the sport, if they're different in different states, that makes it really hard for the jockeys to be able to follow it. Because if they're going from one state where they ride one way and then they go to a different state and they are forced to ride in a different way, um, that's just tough for them in one way. And also it just doesn't, it make, doesn't make much sense. It would make sense that jockeys do breach the rules because it's hard for them to keep track of what's going on. Um, so I think it makes sense for there to be one uniform rule. And I think it makes sense for that to sort of be the case in most aspects of the sport. Especially if you do have jockeys and executives coming out and saying that there should be consistency across all the states. I feel like it's a good argument to then make, a, make this rule and um, implement it to all the different states as well. On FM, on DAB Plus and streaming online at sin.org.au. This is Sin. Where young people run the show. All right, finally, just before we finished, as always, we have a odd sport of the world to present to everybody. And this week, I'm going to butcher the name. We have Fjordjepen. It is a Dutch sport, which pretty much means far leaping. Essentially, what you do is there is a massive pole vaulting stick in the middle of a lake. You run off a ramp, jump onto the stick, climb up the stick. And as the stick falls over to the other side of the sandbank, you have to jump off and the person who gets the furthest distance wins. Pretty much a bootleg Ninja Warrior, if anyone said Ninja Warrior. Have you guys, have you guys, I guess you guys have looked at this. What do you guys think of this? Yeah, the first thing I thought when I looked at it, I was like, this looks straight out of Ninja Warrior. Um, the other thing is it looks really fun. Um, yeah, it's like a, a cool version between pole vault and long jump. Um, and you've got the added excitement that they do it over a body of water. So if people don't make it, they fall in the water, which is just something that's fun, always fun to watch. Yeah, just looking at this sport, I think it looks, yeah, it looks really fun. I think, yeah, I imagine they'd have to have quite a lot of fitness to run up and then pull themselves up on the pole and then make that massive leap. But um, yeah, it looks like a fun sport more than anything. Yeah, again, there's so much, I guess it's a combination of speed. Um, you got to jump onto the pole, use all your upper body strength to climb up the pole. And then you got to have the knowledge of long jump to then jump off the pole, get the furthest distance and land properly to not hurt yourself on the sandbank. It's, I guess I, maybe one of the more tamer ones and less weird ones we've had on the show, but I, probably one of the more skillful ones that we've had as well. It's been an official sport since 1767 as well. So it's probably one of the longest, uh, one of the odd sports that's been around the longest out of the ones that we've done. But it sort of makes sense because they say it just, it developed out of people just needing to cross rivers and stuff like that and just using a stick to sort of, launch themselves over the river and then at some point obviously people were like oh let's see who can go the furthest and that's how it developed into a sport it's even played in germany uh, as well um again i'm gonna butcher this name but it's called pulsstockspringen in <laughs> in germany so it must be getting around the world I, I can't wait to try it here when it comes here 
Pultstock Springen is a fantastic name. <laughs> Something we're going to definitely look for uh, for the next episode. We're not going to choose a sport that has names like this that we cannot pronounce and embarrass us, that's for sure. That brings us to the end of this Wednesday edition of the Sports Desk. Um, you have been with April, Tom and Kendra. It has been a big show. We've covered a lot of different sports from footy to athletics to marathon swimming um, and even a bit of horse racing. And I'm not going to attempt to say the name of our odd sport. But if you missed any of the chat today, you can catch up on Omni or wherever else you get your podcasts from. Um, also be sure to check us out on social media at Sports Desk Sin on Facebook and Instagram. Otherwise, we'll be back next Wednesday morning so you can tune in again then.